Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Lit Fest Salons aim to provide provocative, relevant discussions in a dynamic and informal way. There's food and drink and good old-fashioned audience participation. On June 5th, 2012, the topic of the salon was writing with a gun to your head. The featured authors were Mario Acevedo, Jason Heller, and Julia Casimir. Welcome, everybody, to uh, LitFest. Um, thanks for coming. This is the first uh, salon installation, one of four. My name is Dan Manzanares, and I work here at Lighthouse. I'm their creative curator. I'm going to introduce Mario, and then he will take it from here. Um, Mario Acevedo is a former infantry and aviation officer who now lives and writes in Denver, Colorado. Mario has worked as a military helicopter pilot, an engineer, and an art teacher. Mario is the best-selling author of the Felix Gomez Vampire Detective series, which includes five novels and one graphic novel titled Killing the Cobra. Please welcome Mario Acevedo. Thank you much, uh, Dan. Um, uh, First of all, um, I'd like to thank you all for coming out tonight to the salon, and the Lit Fest is getting bigger and and better every year. Um, I'd like to thank uh, the Lighthouse staff for supporting us, and in particularly um, Andrea and, and Mike Henry, uh, Andrea Dupree and Mike Henry, who are the directors here. Um, they don't like me to talk about them, but I will anyway, because it's very extraordinary what they've done. Um, for example, you're in this beautiful building, and if you guys have, make the opportunity to look at the rest of the building if you haven't. Uh, what's really interesting about this building, it, it weighs 473 tons, and the reason people know this is because this building was moved. This building was going to be demolished at one time. And then somebody said, you know, Lighthouse would love to be in that building. We need to move it so it wasn't be demolished. And, and they moved it. Right. It, no, no, really, seriously, it was moved. It was uh, next door to the um, uh, woman's, um, pardon, the Molly Brown building, which is a parking lot now. They were going to tear this down and put up a parking lot just like the song. And uh, they moved it here. And they even moved the basement. That's, that's the extraordinary thing. Uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding about that. But just go, it's a beautiful, beautiful building. It's probably one of the prettiest buildings in Denver and is um, an example of the architecture of the time. So getting on now, it's my pleasure to introduce two of my favorite people, honestly. And um, I had, back when we were going to talk about, uh, uh, you know, LitFest was coming up and they're coming up with panels and salons and things. And I go, you know, one of the things that's interesting to talk about is that, you know, we as writers and as, as the new writers, or as what they call the pre-published authors, uh, are trying to find, you know, we want to get published, we want to get published. And then we think you get published and then the, the earth stops spinning and the sun shines right on you right away and then the bank account is just overflowing and maybe your bank calls you and says, you know what, there's so much money in your bank account, we have to open up a second bank account, all right, <laughs> for you. I mean, that's what we think is going to happen when we get published. And then you get published and this thing called reality shows up. And I thought it'd be interesting to talk about that. And then, and then not just one book, but what if you have multiple book contracts that you have to juggle with. How, you know, how, how do you deal with that? What kind of issues come up with that? And I thought it'd be interesting to, to talk to a couple of people that this has happened to. Um, and I have to backtrack a little bit because hopefully with all you guys will bring a lot of mojo, good mojo to tonight, okay? Because I need that. 
No. No, why? Because these shoes need good mojo. Because the last time, this is a true story, the last time I wore these shoes, I went to California to possibility of getting married. And then I was talking to this woman, and I was kind of brought that up, and she goes, oh, Mario, let me ask my boyfriend. So, <laughs> true story, true story. And, and there, so obviously there was a lot of miscommunication in those emails and the phone calls and stuff. So uh, I, want, I so they wore those shoes because I want lighthouse mojo on these shoes. So when I go home, I can levitate, all right? So the so two writers I have tonight, um, I'll start first with uh, the better looking of the two, Julie Casimir, okay? <laughs> and uh, Julie, I met Julie, there's another writing organization called Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers. And Julie's one of those people there that I would see, and she's kind of quiet, and yeah, I'm working on my story and stuff, and just sort of keeping it back. And then one, one, and then one day she says, oh, you know, I'm published. I got a contract. And then I meet her a couple weeks later. Oh, I got another contract. I made her, oh, I got another contract. So all of a sudden, all these things happen for her. It's great. And she's originally from Cleveland, Ohio, which she says she left at a young age, and now she lives and writes in Denver, Colorado. Um, she works at the Naropa Institute, which I guess she picks up some kind of writerly mojo over there. Um, and um, she met, and uh, it was an, an editor, an agent at the 2010 Colorado Gold Conference. And she sold uh, Curses, an effed up fairy tale, uh, to Kensington in a two book deal. And the second book is called Froggy Style. So I love what she's talking about. <laughs> now, incidentally, her, she was banned in Westminster. They had an interview set up with her, and they go, oh, we just read the title of your book. We can't talk to you. Um, and, then, uh, and then in 2010, November 2010, she sold The Body Dwellers to Solstice Publishing. And, uh, and then she sold Holy Socks and Dirtier Demons to Champagne Books. And then she just sold uh, a, a Dope Sick, a love story. There's a theme to what you write, uh, to Snub Nose Press. So uh, quite a lot going on there. And in, in her book, uh, Curses, the blurb there is, for, is, forget everything you know about Cinderella and her sisters. J.A. Casimir sets the record straight with wit, humor, and a hell of an imagination. And that's from G. Lee Stein, who's a national best-selling author of vampire novels. Now, the next guy here, Jason Heller, I actually knew, I actually met him before I met him, meaning I, I knew of him before. And uh, he, there was the Westward in the music section started publishing this cartoon and I'm sort of a cartoonist and I'm like who the hell is this guy that he gets his cartoon in the westward so who and so I noticed the line there Jason Heller who is this Jason Heller so it came up in my mind and then all of a sudden I started seeing him as the author of his byline coming up in music reviews in westward and in um, uh, uh, some book review and, and music and movie reviews and then in the AV club, music, music, uh, music book reviews. So this guy was like you know, all over the place. Never met him. And then finally, I was at uh, uh, Mile High Con, I think two years ago. And here was this guy sitting at the desk there, um, pretending to be drinking coffee, but he was actually drinking whiskey or something like that. And I was talking to him, and I'm going, I'm projecting. So I go, so he goes, so I go, who's this hipster guy? And it's Jason Heller. And I'm like, wow, wow. And, and he was telling me about this wonderful, this is, and this is why, sh- why I should hate him, but I don't. Because he, um, he said, I, I'm working on a novel. And I'm, really, you're working on a novel? And he goes, yeah. And I go, this is my first novel. And I've never written a novel. But I have a contract for a novel. 
And, and it was called 2012. So he and I started talking about the novel. And, and if you read 2012, which is a great book, but the best parts are the things that I suggested to him. Okay? <laughs> Uh, but anyway, his, his, uh, uh, he's a pub. And then I got this, I decided to cheat. So I went to uh, Amazon and I got this bio that I think he wrote. And it was like eight pages long. So you know he's a very shy guy. But just a condensed version of it, and I'll read it to you because that's the best way to get it. He's a pub culture journalist, editor, and author of nonfiction who has appeared in dozens of publications, including Cox World, the AV Club. He was a Denver City editor for three years and a regular contributor. He writes for Weird Tales, Alternative Press, Tor.com, Skyscraper, Fantasy Magazine, and Westward, which many of his articles appear in the Village Voice chain. And he's contributed to Scribner's AV Club inventory. He's a 2009 graduate of the Odyssey Writing Workshop, even though he is a high school dropout. Right? <laughs> Honest to God, right? Yes. There you go. Because he said school was boring, and then he had to do all this stuff. Um, and then his science fiction fantasy horror stories appeared in Apex Magazine, Sybil's Garage, Fargo's, Wayne Scott, uh, and many, many more. And then uh, Quirk Books has... His first book printed, uh, uh, published by Quirk Books was the, uh, the Jack Sparrow Handbook. And then because of that, he got uh, the gig to write uh, the novel um, Taft 2012. And Publishers Weekly gave it a starred review, a stellar debut. And 303 Magazine said, Heller is a brilliant writer with a fantastic imagination and a nose for hot topics. So there you go. So we'll start with my first question is... um, what is the biggest lesson you've learned? Oh, and let me say, this is more of a conversation rather than just me talking. If at any time you guys you know, want to participate, just go ahead, okay? Because there's really not a format here other than they're trying to make me look good. Um, so what is the biggest lesson you've learned after getting published? What's the big surprise? The biggest surprise is um, there's a lot more work to do. I really wish it would have been easy. And boy, do I miss actually querying agents and editors because the hard part's writing now, which I'm under contract for. Um, The easy part was querying. So I wish that would have been still the case. What was the question again, Mari? What was the biggest lesson you learned? I just like the the sound of your voice. The biggest surprise surprise, uh, for me getting published was... um, that it doesn't always have to happen in the way that you've kind of been led to expect it to happen, um, where, uh, as Mario mentioned, it isn't always you write a book and then you query an agent and then you get an agent and then they send it out. That is the way many, many books get published, and that's still a very valid way, and that's the page I'm kind of back on right now. But um, you actually can meet people, um, editors, uh, you can, um, if you have uh, other things that you have published, um, you know, you can actually uh, talk people <laughs> into publishing you. Uh, and um, th- so the, to me, the biggest surprise was that it isn't just a direct route. It isn't this, this linear path that's laid out. By no means am, am I saying don't follow that tried and true path because I believe that's still completely valid and probably the best way to go. But I'm also saying um, 
it's probably a good thing to kind of keep your mind open, keep your horizons open, um, and and always kind of be on the lookout for opportunities that might pop up. And also realize that writing, uh, one thing that, that I came to find out was that writing nonfiction and getting published anywhere um, can actually lead to really good things uh, and opportunities coming your way. So, yeah. Back to you. Okay. Um, so, t- tell us a little bit about what's what's going on. Like, what projects do you have that, that you're working on, um, and how you juggle them back and forth? Because you're you're probably working on a on, on one thing, and then you get copy edits back from something else, and then they're asking you to promote. So, kind of give us a rundown about what's what's on your plate right right now. Besides the day job. <laughs> Okay, well, my day job, as Mario said, is at the Naropa Institute, and uh, during the summer I work a uh, 16-hour-a-day a week. Um, So I'm, you know, working 80 hours. So last summer uh, I got the copy edits right in the middle of this program. My editor said, oh, you have plenty of time, but get it back to me in seven days. So on top of that, so again, this summer I'm working at the same job, working 16-hour days. Um, I have copy edits due for the second book, Froggy Style. Um, I have revisions due for Dope Sick Love. Um, And I have a whole new manuscript that I'm working on trying to finish it. So there's plenty of stuff, and on top of that, there's all the promotion that goes along with it. Tell us about your promotion. Um... I do Facebook and Twitter. Um, I tried to get media attention, but in case you didn't know, my book has an F word in it or two, so they're really um, opposed to putting it in mainstream media. Um, but like the Boulder Weekly gave me some some publicity, and um, the AV Club was great, so I went that kind of alternative route. But otherwise than that, it's Facebook, Twitter, guest posts. I think guest posts are really a great way to, to get your book out there. Um, you do guest posts for bloggers um, in your genre, so people that do like paranormal blogs. I, I do a lot of guest posts for them. I was going to say, do you want to blog for the White House? Blog? I would love to. <laughs> you don't have to be. I'll fit in anywhere. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Lighthouse Book Fair, fair all those kind of fairs um, and conferences are just great too. I work in the summer writing program. I do all the registration for them. Yeah, it's a great place. I'm sure as registration, you probably know how what a hassle it can be. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. So uh, TAF 2012, uh, my novel came out in January, and it's kind of. Uh, well, when you have a book with 2012 in the title, obviously you've got kind of a narrow window of opportunity to sell and promote the thing, right? Because 2013 rolls around and, you know, I mean, look at 1984, right? Everyone stopped reading that after 19, like, this didn't happen. Like, <laughs> screw this book. So it's going to ha- the same thing is going to happen to Taft 2012. So, but basically the book deals with William Howard Taft coming back to life and running uh, for president again in 2012. So the marketing for this whole book is concentrated around the 2012 race. So my publisher, Quirk Books, has me uh, blogging and tweeting as Taft in character, reacting to the real life 
presidential race uh, that's going on right now. So that is a huge hassle and a <laughs> giant pain in my ass because, I mean, you know, how many times have you written something and, you know, I mean, I finished writing this book like two years ago. I'm just uh, kind of over William Howard Taft, you know what I mean? And like every day I've got to like, what would Taft think? What would Taft say? Um, so I've got to do that a lot right now. Uh, and sometimes it's easier uh, than other times. Sometimes it's to the point where I'm honestly just like trying to make people mad with things that Taft says. I'm like, mm, okay, I think uh, Taft is going to be, uh, oh, I, I think I'll make him uh, pro-choice. How's that? <laughs> Let's see what everyone says about that. So, uh, so yeah. But so I'm doing that, um, and there's still a few interviews uh, and stuff that happen here and there. And as Julie was talking about um, doing guest blogs, which is a great way to promote a book. And of course, I can't turn down anything. I mean, sometimes, and I'm sure Julie, you've had this too, where someone will send you uh, an interview for their blog, right? And it's like 25 questions. And they want you to, you know, give like fully thought out, like three paragraph answers to every question. So it like takes me all day, you know. Um, but I'm happy, you know, that anyone is showing interest and that I get a chance to talk about the book. In the meantime, I also write full time um, for a living as a freelance writer. As Mario mentioned, I write for the Onions AV Club um, and uh, various other places. Um, and on top of that, I'm also working on a couple other novels and trying to work on some short stories here and there. So yeah, that's what's on my plate right now and juggling all that is a little bit difficult. Jason, is the uh, blog, like the, the tweeting as, as tapped, is that part of your contract? Well, that's what's funny is, and I don't know about, you know, anyone else's contract in the room, how it were, who, who has had one before, how that works for them, but it's it, in my contract, it basically says you agree to promote the book. It's completely open-ended. So it's really about, you know, how much effort you want to put into it with the hopes of, you know, the idea is the more you promote it, the more it sells, the book will earn out, and maybe you'll see some royalties, right? So it's kind of in your vested interest to do anything and everything you can to promote it. That said, I'm a lazy and borderline self-destructive person. <laughs> So at this point, like, I just, I can't, I'm, you know. So, you know, some, sometimes the people at Quirk are like, hey, Taft's been pretty quiet this month. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I, I got to get re-energized and, and, and hop back on that. But sometimes it is kind of tough, you know, to, um, to try to find what that balance is. What does the publisher expect of you? I mean, you know, it's just one of those cases where you just got to kind of feel out the situation. And if you're not promoting enough, they'll probably let you know. And Quirk Books, if any of you guys are familiar with Quirk Books, they, you know, they're the, the company that put out like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and things like They're like marketing is first. And, you know, no slide on them. They're a great company. But, like, somewhere in there, hopefully there's, like, some writing, you know? But it's, like, mar they're, like, insanely fixated on marketing. So I think that's who really runs the place, or, like, the publicist, for all I know. So, yeah, they let me know when I'm being lazy. <laughs> Did someone else? Yeah. Well... Well, oh, in the recall, um, he, yeah, he's actually uh, for the recall. He's he's for taking Scott Walker out of there for no other reason than that's that's my view. 
but actually, um, yeah, not not to get too into it, but you know, uh, you know, Taft was a progressive Republican in his day, and he actually had some pretty. Uh, and I won't bore you guys with this for long, I promise. But he actually really did um, have some. Um, especially at the time, progressive views when it came to organized labor um, and the necessity for it, even if he tussled, you know, with organized labor leaders a lot when he was in office. Um, but that's, yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, yes. What's on your plate and what was your biggest surprise? Yeah. 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 What's, what's on my, my plate? Getting the mojo off these shoes. Um, my biggest surprise, let me think, because I, I thought I went into this process op- open-eyed in that I, I uh, was involved, like I said, in Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers, and to me that was a big turning point because that was the first time, because I used to just write at home, and I would go and get books like the Writer's Digest, or just read them at the, at the Barnes & Noble, and uh, this is in the pre-internet days, and, um, and I took one... Uh, adult education class on writing, which uh, was a good experience in that it taught me, it was such a bad experience that it taught me this is not the way to do it, and that there are some incredibly toxic people in the world, and 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 to stay away, you know, like when that radar, when that light or that alarm in your head starts going, you pay attention to it, um, and and so some really screwed up people in the world, and to stay away from them, uh, and then I and then I came to Denver, and and I had this, you, you guys, one of my favorite sayings is. If if you can go a day without writing, then that's a sign you don't need to be a writer right there, okay? And I was one of these guys, come home, you know, go to work and watch the clock because I'm racing so I can get home and eat dinner and, and, and start writing again. And and I was just that way. And uh, so and I came here and I joined Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers. They had an ad in the Westward back when the Westward was about like this thick. And uh, and I went to the meetings, and I went to their conference, uh, the Colorado Gold Conference, and that was the first time I'd been around uh, uh, published writers, authors, and and um, and it and, I, and I, wow, I, and and that really surprised me. Some of the things that they said, um, and about about writing, and it really inspired me. But it really let me know that you know the world doesn't stop when you get published, and there's things. It's not. It's just another bar you have to jump over. So when when I was lucky, and the one day I got my, the call, which is that my my agent sold my first book. My immediate thought was, people talk about running out of their car, or whatever, doing happy dances. And my work was, fuck, now I got more work to do, <laughs> and and so I mean, I've always I've always gone on about that. But I I know this is going to sound cheesy, but I think my biggest surprise after getting published is meeting other writers and how and getting involved in that community in my tribe and how inspiring that that has been to, uh, to me and in being involved with those people and uh, you know being part of that group uh, it wasn't something I was really aware of and then now that it's happened I know I'm glad that I'm sort of in the, in that club um, what's in my plate I just finished uh, a manuscript from a young, young adult story and I uh, just Got my comments back from my critique group, and I got to polish that up and and send it off to my agent, and hopefully he can find a a nice home because it doesn't come, need to come back with stab marks on it. And said, "What an ugly baby you made again, Mario." Uh, um, and and then some other things. I, I've learned a lot. I mean, the the publishing has changed quite a bit now with uh, the internet, and but there's a lot that you as a writer can do to 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 promote things to. 
to like uh, what what is it in the Hunger Games? May the odds be forever in your favor. You can't put all the odds. It might not be always in your forever in your favor, but there's things you can do. I think that you can uh, take advantage of. But it's all more work, right? More more competing, more competition. So the other thing, I'm, is, is that okay? Is that a good answer? Okay, thank you, thank you. I like Andrea because she puts me on the spot. She does that. So and I feel for for Mike. Does she do that to you at home? It puts you on the spot. You, you come home feeling great, and she's like, "What about this?" Oh. So he doesn't answer. You don't have to. You don't have to answer. No, no, no. You don't. Have, you're not on the panel. <laughs> Keep me out of this. No. Okay. So we're gonna uh, talk some about something else, and that is. Um, one of the things that does just change in that before you, you know, you, you get you, your first contract, it's like, and you're writing a novel, you can take forever to write that novel, right? And uh, you have your own group, except for you. See, there's always an exception. I have this one, uh, when, every time I teach a writing class, I have this uh, quote from W. Somerset Mom, which I love, which is, there are three rules for writing a novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. Okay, and for every for everything you say, there's always an exception. Like you were talking, I just said now you can take forever to write your novel before you get your contract. This guy had a contract before he even wrote the novel, oh, his first novel. So you can see nothing makes sense in in the publishing world. But uh, one of the things is that you when you do write your novel and um, uh, you work hard at it, right? And I think you all do, and you sweat to the last minute. And even if you think you are going to be done, you plan it out because you don't want to wait till the last minute. And you're going to have it ready a month before or whatever. It doesn't make a difference. You wait until the last minute because your mind is constantly churning and you want to submit the best thing you do. You do. You're a professional writer. Yes, sir. Uh, yes. The, the speaker's making a funny sound because you're standing. Okay, yeah, like this. All right. I was wondering where that noise was coming from. <laughs> Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, can't you edit that out? Like audio Photoshop or something? Okay, I don't know. I don't know. No, they don't. Oh, okay, that's tough luck. Pardon? No, I have stuff here. So, um, I could, but I'm lazy. So, um, I'm one of those cranky writers that set, set in his ways. and that. So, I, so I, you know, you have this manuscript and you send it to your to your editor and uh, you've worked hard at it and you want to show that you're a professional writer that, you know, that they, they did well by, by contracting you, right? That you're going to hold this thing up. So you send this thing to them. And um, then there's something that I think in all your contracts is the, the revision letter or the, the edit letter where they have a certain amount of time that you send them this manuscript and basically they say, no, you missed the boat. And they send you the manuscript back. And then you have a, you have a certain amount of time to fix it. And then the second time around, they, they usually say, they yes, or they keep working with you. So you have this manuscript that you really worked on, and you are proud of this thing. And you send it in, and this is what you get back. Okay. <laughs> now, this is the old style. Now it's all done electronically. But this is, this is what your editor sends back to you, okay? So if you think you're a professional writer, this is what you get back. And then they give you, uh, my contract is they give you eight weeks to fix this, okay? And you, it's, it, it's, you do, okay? But every, every author I know, even like the best-selling New York, whatever, they, they're waiting for that, that eight weeks because they all know. This is gonna. This is what's gonna come back. Maybe not as bad as this because maybe they're better writers than me. All right. So, 
how do you deal with that? You send the manuscript in and you wait however many weeks. Usually it's eight weeks or 12 weeks and they give you your manuscript back and then they say you have a certain amount of time to fix it. Tell us about that, that process and we'll start with Julie. That's never happened to me. I write perfectly. There's never a mistake. I don't know what you're talking about, Mario. There might be one typo, right? <laughs> one typo. So when I get that one typo back, I usually get a fifth of whiskey, drink that down, um, go to the liquor store, buy another one, and uh, about week seven and a half, I start actually looking at the manuscript, and the whole time it's just you know closing one eye and, and just praying that it's not as bad as all those sticky notes look. Yeah, that's tough. It's, it's especially tough because it isn't just how intimidating. I mean, when I get done with the first draft uh, of a book, um, I like I just don't want to look at it. I don't want to look at it ever again. I mean, never, ever again. I don't want to read one word of it. I don't want to read it when it's published. I don't want to read a page of it at a reading. I just never want to see it again. And the problem is, like, not only do you have to look at it again, you've got to really think about it. I mean, the instructions they give you aren't rewrite this paragraph so that it says this. I mean, a lot of the feedback you get from the editor is very open-ended, and you have to really um, think about what I think really, really hard uh, about how it is. And out of the manifold possibilities, how it, you know, ways that you could change this that you think would fit the guideline you're getting from your editor, you're hoping that's what it is they're looking for. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And then, of course, changing that one thing means, oh, I'm going to have to go change this thing over here. And it's like this domino effect. And then I just want to throw the entire thing in the toilet. So it's like, that's a really, really tough thing. But but what's, it's tough enough to do that on its own. But if you happen to get that, because you never know when you're going to get that feedback from your editor... And then when you get that, and you also have a lot of other things, like in life, you know, like other professional things or family things or whatever else. Um, but the flip side of that is I all just me personally, the way I work in anything is when I have a deadline and an expectation and someone tapping their fingers, then... There's a part of my brain, I guess it's panic mode. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't enjoy it. I hear some people really like are junkies for that, you know, that deadline pressure. I mean, I, I don't like, I mean, I almost like kill myself every single time I've got a crazy deadline like that. But the thing is, I get it done. And it, I eventually, once I get into that mode, I do start to like acclimate to it, you know, pulling all nighters, like shutting out everything else for a few weeks in life, like food, sex, like the, the bathing. <laughs> I'll like eat in the shower, you know, just to get it all out of the way as quickly as possible. And then it's like, go get this stuff done. Um, but it's really the negative reinforcement. I mean, I need someone riding my back, yelling at me. Um, and that's, yeah. So in that sense, I'm glad for that because um, that, and part of that is my, you know, my background as a freelance writer too, um, where there's really tight deadlines granted for smaller projects, but just getting into that rhythm and just basically getting into that, like having someone beat you with a stick, like all day long and you just get in this permanent half cringe and like, that's kind of a, a productive, that's a productive pose to be in. Like a 
like a hermit crab. <laughs> exactly. Um, but but I will say that um, my my editor for all those comments, the, the book is much better, and it 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 really opened my eyes about that because my critique group has seen this, but. To have a professional in the industry who sees work from many, many other writers also take a look at my work, and she's comparing my work to theirs. And her and her feedback is not only do you have to, uh, uh, you know, improve the story, you have to make it commercially uh, uh, competitive to their work, right? Because you know it's all you know they have it. The book has to sell, and um, so you know, so I, I. I I, I realized that, and it made me think a little bit more because I would write a story, and then she would say, maybe because I'm a shallow person, she would say, "You need to be deeper here in the story." And I'm like, "What does that mean?" So, um, but no, but she she made some really some great suggestions. And for me, my first book, I wrote it as a standalone. It was a complete okay. This is just a one-off thing, and then it sold as a as a series. And now I had to think about a lot of things like the backstory of the character, and my editor was like hitting me on that. And 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 then when I when I worked that into the story, I think the story became uh, a lot a lot richer because of that. Um, you're writing a series, right? And um, and I think maybe you can speak on this: is that people go, okay, you got a series, you got characters, you got your your world there, so the it's easier to write the next book. And and in one case, you've already got that all worked out. The challenge is you can't repeat yourself, right? Because if you do, the reader goes, I've been here before. You know, why am I wasting my time? So every story has to be different and then at the same time still carry over the same, uh, the same thing. So would you like to speak on that? I'm very repetitive, so don't hold that against me in the second book. Um, it is true in a series that you have to just watch out for all those things. Like you can't explain the character's hair color the same way you did in the first book. Um, you know, their family life, you can't... I, I don't know if a lot of you read Janet Ivanovich, but she always explains her like main characters with the same kind of descriptors. Um, and by the 20th book now, it's annoying. Um, so that's one thing you can't do. I'm lucky in that my series is based in a fairy tale world. I don't have to use the same character, so I'm lucky in that. Um, and, and Ian Fleming, the guy who wrote uh, uh, James Bond, that's why he stopped writing James Bond uh, for a while because he started repeating himself. And then for a while, I was in a James Bond kick. And I'd be reading his books. I'm like, didn't he already use this? Like, the the hall yawned before him. And I'm like, okay, that was cool the first time he used it. But then, like, again and again and again. And I could see where he was under pressure and uh, writing. And how many times can he write, James Bond was afraid? And, you know, how, how many novel ways, different ways can you do that without, you know, just digging in and digging in and finally making it a cliche. So I can understand why he kind of got tired. And until they came back to him with, here, we need, here's, buy an island <laughs> and write another book. So my next question for you two is, um, what's your, your next, your either writer trick or writer quirk that you've, that you've got, that you're willing to share? Now, I send this question to you guys, so you guys should already have the answer. <laughs> so they're, they're looking at me like, what are you talking about? I go, I said this. It's the first on the list. No, it's not. It's like number 10. But either writer trick or writer quirk. Either one of the two. Um, yeah, I could answer that a little bit. Um, so, you know, I've got 
various bigger deadlines that I've got to meet, but every, almost every day I've got some kind of smaller deadline for an article or a, a review, review that I write for you know, some various publication I freelance for. Um, and it's, you know, to this day, I mean, I've been freelancing for about 10 years now, and I still have the hardest time in the morning making myself sit down and do anything. It never gets easier. I'm assuming at this point it never will. Um, so the only thing that I can really do at this point um, is I will basically, as if I'm not getting punished enough, you know, I, I punish myself. <laughs> yeah, I t- <laughs> But but what I do is I try to give myself some kind of incentive um, or or demerit, I suppose, if I don't get stuff done by a certain time. Now, it can be as simple as treating myself to a beer in the afternoon out on the patio somewhere, right? Um, or uh, just knowing that if I get a bunch of stuff done before the end of the week, I can take a day off. I mean, I don't take days off. I don't have days off. Um, so to be able to take, for instance, a Saturday or Sunday off where I don't work at all um, is a great incentive that I can give myself to get stuff done. Um, Because the worst are the things that don't really have much of a deadline. I mean, both of the novels I'm working on right now, neither of them are under contract. So it's just kind of whenever I feel like working on them. So I kind of feel like I'm starting over again completely um, on square one. And, you know, this is a little off topic, but Mario was talking earlier about how, you know, you have a book come out and you think that's it. And, you know, now really I'm at that point where it's like, did, like, did I have a book come out? I mean, what was like, <laughs> I guess I did. Um, but I, like, I have no thought whatsoever except for this other stuff that I'm doing and hoping and praying like hell that someone will want to buy it. Um, and by buy it, I mean publish it and then buy it. <laughs> so, so, you know, trying to motivate myself without having that like sword hanging over my head, um, is really the toughest thing. So, so the biggest trick that I've learned is just try to find, if no one's going to punish you or reward you, then find a way to do it for yourself. Um, and then if you don't actually punish yourself when you're supposed to, then you punish yourself for that. <laughs> Twice as hard. I, I really hate to admit mine, but I have fuzzy Elmo slippers that I absolutely have to wear to be able to write anything good. <laughs> so, if they were uh, stolen, how much... Uh, <laughs> Don't even scare me like that. <laughs> Talk about both. So, I have a question yeah. uh, for Jason. Um, yeah. How do you organize? How do you prioritize? Yeah, that's tough. I, I usually... I mean, is. I'm sure there's tons of software that can help you schedule. I just have a word document and I, it's just called schedule. Um, and I revise that thing about 18 times a day as I shift from one thing to another, uh, or as I, you know, quit one thing, uh, and and put it aside for however long, uh, or as I fall behind on certain things that I thought I you know I thought I was going to get to a certain point in the day. You know, for instance, um, on a, a, any given day, I'll have okay, I'm going to review this book for this editor. I'm going to review this uh, piece of music for this other editor, and I'm also going to get a chapter done. Now, certain times of the day, I'm better at doing certain types of writing. I don't know about 
you guys who switch back and forth, I write fiction way, way better uh, in the morning. Um, by the time lunchtime rolls around, I, like I pretty much can't. I'm useless when it comes to fiction. Um, so I have to try to front load my day with that. And if that if something comes up, you know, like you have editors drop things on your lap all the time, um, you know, freelance wise, where they're like, oh. I, I need you to write this like in five hours. So a lot of times you've got to kind of juggle that. So to me, like I've got to take all those variables into account and then I just kind of keep this running schedule of things and just have multiple deadlines a day for myself, whether they're uh, imposed externally or, or whether I'm just making them up myself. So that's my very unscientific and imprecise way of, of doing it. I could do a spreadsheet, I guess. I don't know. If I could do spreadsheets, I wouldn't be a writer. I'd probably <laughs> make money and be a happy person. I have no quirks. No quirks. Yes, yes. I just want to get it done. Um, I think part of it is, um, it depends on the level of concentration. I'm just not a, I mean, I, I don't want to tell you some sob story about my childhood right now, maybe later, a couple more beers. But, um, but you know, I, I just don't concentrate really well. And the more thought uh, and immersion um, that is involved in a certain piece of writing, the tougher it is for me to slip into it. Whereas the shorter freelance pieces that I do um, are a lot quicker um, because you're just kind of skimming. You're skimming the surface of whatever topic you're writing about. Even the same with... Does, it would be the difference between writing a piece of flash fiction as compared to, you know, uh, an 8,000-word short story, right? So, to me, it, it's partly you know, the the level of concentration it's going to take and just how unpleasant it is for me. I'm just naturally a daydreamy sort of person. And if it were up to me, I would just sit and stare at the wall all day, probably. Um, and that's where all my novels would take place. <laughs> I can't really... Uh, technology has not yet been invented that I can share that with anyone. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of... that. That's really, like, the tough thing... Um, you know, and also there's all the other uh, distractions. I also play music. I play in bands. I play guitar and sing in bands. And to me, playing music is natural and fun and easy and therapeutic. And y writing is none of those things. I mean, it's none of those things. So there's always the temptation, like the guitarist is kind of staring at me all day. You know, it's like Kenny Rogers. You see that old guitar in the night, right? Mario. <laughs> um, I don't know if that <laughs> answered your question, Laura, but yeah. Um, I, I don't think Jason is being quite fair to him because I read his shorter pieces and you know, say you're skimming the surface, but it, you know, you've got this depth of knowledge on those things that you write and it just comes through and it, he might think it's off the top. You know, off the cuff, but there's just a lot there, particularly his music, or even the movie reviews, where he's pulling from a lot 
you know, to, to provide them. And it's a very in-depth, to me anyway, in-depth uh, review that he has, that he's done. So he might say he just cranked them out, but it, it did a good job. And, and also, you're a professional writer. And I think that we all have a tendency of just to go back and look and, and keep honing and honing and honing it. And, and we've picked up certain, certain skills and at the same time, we're aware of certain expectations that we have because we don't want to send it to somebody and say, you know, we, the editor say, you know, I was really expecting you to do a better job because they might as well cut your arm off when they say something like that. Uh, it'd be if you're a professional dancer and somebody says, you know, you're, you're kind of crappy dancer and you, and you make you feel better. Or a musician, they say, you know, I've heard a lot about you and, boy, I thought you'd be better than this. And, and I don't... You know, we don't want that as, as a writer, which is discounting reviews, because sometimes people who write reviews have different agendas, um, but that's a whole different topic. So uh, my next question is, because we're coming close to the end, what is your biggest waste of time as a writer? Facebook. I'm a terrible, terrible Facebook addict. Um, I, I will do anything, anything, um, not to write. At one time, I was writing the fairy tale, and I found myself watching TV at the same time, and this transvaginal mesh commercial came on. So I, of course, had to look that up. So I spent the next, like, four hours researching this this thing, um, which I know a heck of a lot about, but I'll never need to use it. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> um, now, I, um, I would say that the biggest, and I'm not saying this is a waste of time categorically, um, but it was that the waste of time? Was that? Yeah. Biggest waste of time. By no means is this categorically a waste of time, but when it comes to writing f- uh, fiction and in particularly novels, um, my biggest waste of time is research and outlining. Now, before I go any further with that, I do want to say... I, if it's a type of novel that requires some kind of research, well, then you need to research. And I'm, I know this is a, a contentious subject. For me personally, I have to outline. Some people hate outlining. I love outlining. My problem is I love outlining too much. I will sit and outline the same book over and over, and I justify it in my mind by thinking, every time I do this, I come up with some great new idea, some great new approach. But when it gets to the point where I've got eight separate outlines, each of them that I think is equally valid for a novel, that's when I say to myself, you're just playing games with yourself at this point. You're not actually um, doing anything Uh, productive here Um, because at a certain point as everyone knows the outline is a very loose blueprint and when you sit down and start working through that outline and fleshing it out things take on a shape of their own that rigid outline gets scoliosis right you know it just starts kind of curling around and and you kind of sweep along with it and hope it retains something of the definition that it had when you started which is a good thing i think that's how a story especially a novel ought to be but i just get wrapped up in the abstract just kind of you know plot game of of piling all these different revelations upon revelation. And, you know, at a certain point, I just have to realize that, you know, you can't stuff every random idea on a certain, you know, that you have with these characters and with this plot into one single novel all the time that you have to kind of basically just pick an outline and go with it um, rather than 
just dwell on it forever. And of course, not only does it confuse you in your head as to where the story really is, it's just time spent not writing the damn book. Yes. My name is uh, Rudy. I've got uh, four things coming out this year. And I've been like you know, getting giddy from it, or whatever. And then uh, in the midst of that, or about two weeks ago, uh, Neil Gaiman comes out with his, uh, his uh, commencement address to the class of 2012 at the uh, University of the Arts in Philadelphia. And uh, I assume some of the three of you are familiar with that, and uh, I thought this discussion here, this, this whole topic here about uh, gun to your head and deadlines and uh, working on multitasking mm -hmm. on different uh, projects and whatever would, would be the kind of place that maybe, maybe it's, been, it's been covered or will be covered in some other like house event this week, but uh, Gaiman's uh, advice about uh, making good art was was in the context of what he had to do, deal with, of having so many projects, of getting uh, absurd uh, offers uh, of money to produce novels by, or and, and all kinds of other work. Mm -hmm. So my question to whoever's familiar with the uh, address is whether you've taken that to heart in, uh, in any significant way. Well, I did listen to it and. Um what I took from it was he talked about the, your goal is this mountain. And no matter what you do, as long as you can see the mountain and you're going toward the mountain, you're going in the right direction. Because it's a very ambiguous process getting you know, published or, or any kind of creative endeavor and finding success in it. So you, finally, you, you have to identify, okay, where, where do I want to go? And you can kind of see that and you just orient on that. And then he talks about... Things like offers, uh, offers, you know, uh, opportunities to do things. And at first, if those those offers are taking you toward the mountain, then you take them because it gets you toward the mountain. But at some point, some of those offers are behind you, and they take you away from the mountain. And meaning you have to evaluate what is important because he said, you know, it's always good to get the money and you know contracts and things like that. But if it's taking you away from your goal. He said, maybe you should look and decide not, not, not to take them. And he said, that's, that's sort of that his guiding philosophy. And I just wish I would have heard that 25 years ago. Um, so uh, so that's, that's, that was my takeaway from, the, from that uh, speech. Did you? I promised myself when the book came out that I would say yes to everything that was offered to me. Um, and f for two months, it practically killed me. Um, but I'm still kind of in that mode where saying yes to everything is very important to me. Um, a year from now, I don't think it will be, and I think maybe I'll I'll you know pick and choose a little a little clearer. Um, but going towards that mountain, I think is really important uh, for me right now. Um, the other element of that speech that Gaiman gave that you mentioned real briefly was uh, the multitasking part of it. So to me, that was the part of it that kind of resonated with me the most and it kind of justified in my mind the r really kind of bizarre path that I wound up on um, when it comes to being a professional writer and that is 
I really had no plan. Um, I fell into it by accident. Or, like, well, Laura Bond can tell you the story over here. She she was actually the person who dragged me into professional writing about 10 years ago. Um, kicking and screaming. Uh it was not something I wanted to get into. I liked writing for pleasure. And when uh, I had to start um, actually thinking about what I could give to someone um, that was worth uh, the money that I was being paid and how and try to put myself on the receiving end um, rather than be, think about completely what satisfied myself. Yes, you're supposed to write and make yourself happy, but so many opportunities for me came up um, from writing and thinking about what I could do to write that someone else would like to read. Um, obviously, that can be taken too far, um, that whole idea. But to me, the whole idea was, well, I guess writing is communicating, right? So I'm just going to try to write as much as I can, wherever I can, however I can, hopefully get paid, um, and the big thing to me was to write both fiction and nonfiction. And to me, that's where it comes back to game and speech. Um, writing nonfiction has helped fiction, the fiction writing I've done, and opportunities from writing fiction have come up to write nonfiction uh, and get paid for it. I know it seems like a lot of either or. Like, it doesn't seem like a very glorified thing to write a bunch of little, get a bunch of little bylines in various places. Not really expressing yourself, but writing about other things, writing about a book or reviewing, you know, whatever. Um, but any chance that you have to write anything for any reason is exercising the writing muscle. It's making you think about how you formulate your thoughts, anticipating what your audience might think or not think about what it is you're writing. All those things are just, it just puts you in the mindset of being a writer. So that was the big validation for me in hearing Neil Gaiman say that, um, you know, cause here's a guy who's kind of done everything. I mean, his first book was a biography of Duran Duran when he was like 21 years old, right? He wrote in the eighties, you know? Yeah. See, um, you know, and then he's written comic books, of course, uh, and written novels and screenplays, and he's kind of done the whole route. Um, so to me, um, and also as an, as an editor, as people who have, you know, someone um, who has hired freelancers and, and tried to help you know, guide people a little bit, that's the biggest piece of advice I could also give anyone, that is diversify, look for as many opportunities in as many different areas and realize that any writing you do anywhere um, is going to help you in the long run. It aggregates, um, especially in this day and age where it's all out there on the internet, hopefully. Yes. Kind of a follow-up to several of the questions. Uh, I live in, in this illusion that there are these unspoken secret communication rules about the behind-the-scenes language and how much you disclose to your agents and that kind of thing and what does a personal relationship look like and what are the professional boundaries and all that kind of thing. So in, in 25 words or less, could you explain all that? <laughs> Go ahead. I will not share my secret handshake with you. <laughs> um, unfortunately, there is nothing like that. I mean, in a dream world, that would be really nice to, you know, once you get published, you get a handbook with code words. 
No, it doesn't happen. Um, as far as um, relationships, uh, it's it's interesting the relationship you have with your agent and with your editor. Um, with your agent, it's really, really personal. It, it can be, at least. Um, and with your editor, it can be, too, depending on you know what kind of fiction you're writing. Bluff. A lot. That's that's the secret language. Um, I've bluffed my way into a lot of situations and then uh, kind of followed through on the seat of my pants. Um, but, you know, when it comes to, I mean, I say that jokingly, but honestly, like, obviously there's, you know, and I realize, you know, you're, you're speaking, you know, a little bit humorously. Um, but I think that the main thing is, you know, um, I mean, I've gone up to editors cold, like at a convention and tried to convince them um, to pay me um, to write something for them and they don't know me from a hole in the ground. And I think the main thing is like, if you can be clear and concise and confident and just kind of drive home to someone, uh, you know, whether it be an agent you're querying, I mean, I've done the same thing, like just kind of cold, you know, queried an agent, uh, and, uh, tried to muscle my way onto their list and you know the you know just to just to really um i mean you know confidence is kind of the wrong word i mean i don't think i have a lot of confidence but you know realize that making the step and approaching someone is 90 percent of it and if you can just like follow through with that um opportunities can come i mean obviously you know i don't think anyone in here is the type of you know, sociopathic personality that would hound, you know, an editor or an agent at a convention and, you know, like being one of those creepy type of people. If you're not a creep, you're 95% there. I mean, you honestly are because that's what they deal with all the time. So if you can just go up and speak to someone like a human being for five minutes, I mean, you're, you know, that's, that's it. Um, and, and the other thing is, uh, and I've been on both sides of this equation. Just, you know, never take, uh, never take a no. I mean, take a no. If someone tells you no, believe it's no. But never take a no as the end of anything. Um, you know, uh, a rejection is a rejection is a rejection, but it also means that door is open. That person knows who you are. They know what to expect from you. So if the next thing you show them blows them away is above and beyond that, then they have something to gauge that against um, and they know who you are. Uh, so, you know, always just to put yourself out there and, and just be a, a sane human being might be too much for to ask of any writer. Uh, but, you know, um, slightly lower on, on the scale of obnoxiousness. Because like I said, you know, people do. I mean, if any of you have been to conventions before, it, I mean, it's crazy, you know. Um, so... Yeah, there's no secret secret language uh, or anything like that as far as I've ever seen. But yeah, I'll, I'll say that. Uh, uh, yeah, you hear these cozy relationships like uh, your editor has this house in the Hamptons, so why don't you come and stay with me, and I'll helicopter you from the airport, and all that. No, maybe that happens to some people, but it doesn't happen to me. Uh, you know, they say, well, you can schedule coffee maybe if you're in town, um, and uh, my. Uh, my uh, last time last year at uh, 
the Rakiman uh, uh, Gold Conference, they had somebody from my the agency that represents me was there, and she met this one particular author hadn't signed yet, and had lunch and a breakfast, a brunch thing, and then lunch, and they were hanging out. And I go, that never happened to me. Okay, what 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 am I, what am you know what am I doing wrong? But I mean, it's just personal relationships and things. But the thing is, above all, is to be professional. Uh, I think, like at Lit Fest and other conferences, um, it's an opportunity to meet agents and editors. And even if you don't have a, a pitch session signed up, at a party or something, you can meet them. And don't be afraid of coming up. And nothing else, just introducing yourself to them. And even if you don't have anything to sell at that time, just say, hi, how are you doing? And and what this does is it makes you realize that they're, they're human beings. And that uh, you... I get comfortable talking about with them. So in the future, when you do have something, you you know you have something to relate to, and you can get more relaxed. And they sense this, like you're not some person that comes. What do you have? You blurb that thing out, and you kind of hang on them, and you're just kind of looking at them. Please make my life perfect by signing a contract with me, and that. Okay, so we're at the at the end of time, not all time, but at the end of time here, the apocalypse, and we missed it. We missed it. We were at the salon. Um, so, so, yeah, so uh, uh, a, a couple of things. There, uh, uh, once again, thanking Lighthouse for this opportunity, uh, an opportunity for you guys to meet our two great panelists here, and also an opportunity for us to meet you, all right? Uh, we've uh, got a couple of things here. We're going to have a uh, drawing for Surprise, Surprise, books by these authors, all right? And we... Um, the books are available as well as other books on writing. Uh, the tattered cover has them available back there, so please support the cause. Um, finally, uh, the last question I have is um, any advice about writing or the publishing life? Okay. Everybody says that, but you just have to sit your butt down in the chair and write. Um. I would say throw yourself in the deep end. Um, That's easier said than done. And of course, deep end is different for everyone. But um, try to to find a way to make it so that um, if you don't write, something terrible is going to happen to you. Uh, You know, I don't, you know... uh, you know, if, if you there's you get something hooked up to your computer, it'll release a poison gas capsule uh, in your mom's bedroom if you don't get three thousand words written by the end of the day. Maybe something like that. Um, but you know, but but really, you know, like to me, you know, quitting my job and going out on a limb um, and trying to write full time. Obviously, it's not an option for everyone, and it's a crazy thing to do. You don't have to go that far uh, off the deep end, but anything that you can do. Um, to kind of pin things, uh, you know, to, uh, to your writing, you know, um, whether it be joining, even joining, uh, you know, a writing workshop, uh, you know, or, or a critique group, uh, or anything like that. Um, anything where people are expecting things of you and you have to deliver, or you're going to disappoint someone. Uh, and then of course, if it gets to the point where you're writing professionally and, you know, you could disappoint someone who signs your paychecks, then that's also great incentive. But throw yourself on the deep end. Give yourself big goals. Overextend yourself, um, and and just push yourself. Um, you know, don't don't sell yourself short. You're a tremendous slouch, as they say on Caddyshack. But uh, but no, but no, seriously. Like you know, you gotta. <laughs> but but you just really you you really gotta 
like reach for way beyond what you think you can do and then try to at least meet that halfway. All good advice. Um, anyway, well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.